Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Cipriano. We're up to episode number 61 on the Tartan Talk series, and joining us is A. John Harvey. John recently moved back to his native Michigan, so a disclaimer here, there's some Michigan-specific talk early in the podcast. And once we get past that, John is going to discuss his experiences working on the Robert Trent Jones Golf Trail in the 1990s with Roger Rulowich. And John also is going to discuss what he learned about golf course construction through his work with Robert Trent Jones Sr. And also we get into some of the relationships that John has had with various superintendents throughout the course of his career. But before we get going with John, we'd like to thank Better Billy Bunker for supporting this podcast. Better Billy Bunker is not only a big supporter of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, Better Billy Bunker supports a number of industry efforts, including the work of golf course superintendents. So we're glad that they're on board and we're glad that John was able to take so much time to speak with us. Well, John, it's great to have you on Tartan Talks. And the first thing I want to ask you about is you recently returned to your home state, Michigan, to live and base your business. What has that been like being home again? Well, it's it's been a treat. Uh, And it's something I've been thinking of for many, many years. And I I certainly enjoyed my time out east. And I travel back and forth with projects and visiting family out east on a regular basis since I've been here over the last two years. And um, my wife and I had had been talking about moving over the past few years. And since my family was based in in Michigan, we would come out to visit uh, over the holidays and during the summer and and see my brother in, in Grand Rapids and uh, my mom in East Lansing, and we'd take her up and sometimes meet my brother up in the Traverse City area and points in between, and just really, uh, it, it rekindled my spirit, love, and zest for the Great Lakes State, and it just made a lot of sense to just have a discussion with my wife uh, and family about the possibility when my twins were graduating to look at schools in, in Michigan. So um, we had played basketball on several occasions during the winter months uh, while we were visiting my, my mom uh, at, at the uh, IM building on campus at Michigan State. And they just, uh, I guess by osmosis, became Spartan fans. And, and uh, so it wasn't a, too much of a twist of, of fate to get them to everybody to consider moving and buying property. And we even built a house here so um, and lived on property while the house was being built. So that's it's it's quite an adventure, and, and we're happy to be here and, and certainly enjoy my family visits and time with our family out east and project work. So it's been a good journey. You have to be the first person we brought on to the Tartan Talks podcast that has twins. Describe being a golf course architect while raising two children of the exact same age. Well, it's I do have an older daughter, uh, Kristen, uh, who's just moved to bought a co-op two blocks from Yankee Stadium in the Bronx, and she has her own jewelry design business, so I'm very, very proud of her because she uh, went to FIT in the city and then uh, SCAD, uh, Savannah College of Art and Design in uh, Savannah, Georgia, and is amazing with some of the work that she does. And then and then the, the twins, uh, AJ and Teresa. Teresa is an ardent Sparty fan, and, and AJ is to some degree, too. Uh, going to northern Michigan where, where Tom Izzo went to school. Teresa just uh, really is into the, the marketing and the business studies at, at MSU, and AJ's into fisheries and wildlife. 
I tend to say with AJ that I, I introduced him to fishing and now he teaches me how to fish. Uh, but between the two, um, it's, <laughs> it's, we're very blessed. Caroline and I are, are very blessed to have, uh, children and, and to be, uh, uh, parents, proud parents of, of, of these two. And certainly, you know, if, I remember growing up, um, or, or when my, the twins were first born and, and one of the nurses said that, well, you got twins and, you know, it's a beautiful blessing, but just remember there's the terrible twos that come along with twins. And, you know, I, I kind of took that as a grain of salt, but, uh, you know, having twins with, uh, they kind of had their own language, I guess, even in vitro, as I've come to learn. And it, it's a very special blessing, and I, I can't deny that. And the fact that they're both healthy and, and they have Caroline's looks, uh, that's a blessing, too. <laughs> Completely loaded question here. What's better in Michigan, the fishing or the golf? Oh, boy. No, that's a, that's a good question. I think the state as a winter wonderland and even all four-season wonderland offers a variety of both the boating life and then the golf life. Uh, I'm not far from treetops or, or crystal downs or Arcadia. Um, it, it's just a, there's a plethora of, of golf here. And certainly from inland waterways, from the fishing standpoint to ponds, lakes, and then the Great Lakes, it's, uh, <laughs> it, it's just impressive. It, it's nice to continue in, to explore um, both the, the golf, which I've been aware of and have been able to play over time of being out of state and then back in state. So, yeah, it, it, that's a tough call. It, it, it's really uh, it's a paradise for everybody. Michigan's a cool weather state. Not a lot of time to play golf. But growing up there, where did you learn the game and what were some courses that inspired you to take a look at golf course architecture as a possible career? Yeah, great question. We we used to uh, live, grew up on in Hazlitt and lived a half a mile as a crow uh, flies and about a mile uh, on our bike uh, where we went to golf lessons. Our parents enrolled us at golf lessons at, at the time. It was a nine-hole golf course, public-private golf course called Pine Lakes Country Club. It has since changed its name, its name probably about 30 years ago, maybe 25 years ago. Um, but that's where we learned it. Ron Applegate was the teaching professional and owner at the co-owner at the time. And uh, my, my dad and mom felt very uh, that golf was a very important game to get outside, to enjoy the environment, to have that camaraderie with your playing partners and, and even competitors. And uh, so my brother, Dave, and, and my sister, Beth, and I, we, we took up the game there at an early age and, and continue to play and enjoy the game, of course. And then um, I remember one day in a, on the practice tee where we were, we were taught to take divots. I was almost afraid of taking divots. And then all of a sudden, I was learning how to take divots, and it seemed like I was, it was a mind sight. Um, but uh, it was... <laughs> And then afterwards, we were we were encouraged uh, to go pick up the balls, whether they were in the woods or in the fairway proper. And so that was uh, that was that was part of the lesson too of not only playing and learning the game, but picking up the balls and not being afraid of of the etiquette portion of repairing ball marks, 
replacing divots, and even how to uh, address the game and, and be conscientious of the people you're playing with. Uh, so that was the location. And and then in, in high school, I played on the golf team at my brother Dave. I went to golf camp at MSU, and we played at Forest Acres there, and that's when uh, both uh, Mary and Bruce Fossum, the golf coaches at MSU, were also the hosts and, and teachers of the golf school, along with some of the, I, I guess at the time, some assistants and college players. But uh, that was, looking back at it, that was a very special time to know the the aura of MSU and then certainly the Fossum family uh, being very accomplished players. And later in, during high school, I actually played against uh, both Billy and Bob Fossum uh, when they were playing for Okemos High School. And my, like I said, my brother and I played for Hazlitt. So, um, so those are really locally two of the courses that, that we really learned and, and honed our game. Was it at Michigan State when you realized you can make a career out of it? Well, kind of both, because uh, both at Pine Lakes Country Club in Hazlitt, they, uh, I believe it was uh, toward my eighth grade, ninth grade, when they started to add nine holes. And I would walk that property. They were looking at turning it into 18. And I would walk that property kind of asking myself, why? Why are certain things taking place? Uh, positioning of bunkers, um, the routing of holes, and not really having any answers, but just at the back of my mind, asking a lot of questions. It was that, and playing and loving the game, and then just the the aroma of being outside and fresh-cut grass and being a, a, a one that appreciates the environmental implications of flora and fauna, uh, terrain, um, and wildlife that was that was very important to me. So it kind of wound together when uh, we also uh, looked at, at when I went to MSU studying landscape architecture during college. I play every so often, but not as much looking back. Nor was I involved in extracurricular activities. Unfortunately, <laughs> looking back at it now, I was so focused on studies and 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 design work and learning everything I could that I didn't goof around as much as. <laughs> Perhaps I, I could have in and, and, and playing sports and, and going to different events and, and sporting events and parties and that sort of thing. But when I studied an overseas study program in England, Scotland, and Wales, and then later on in continental Europe, I had a chance to do some independent studies through the Landscape Architecture Overseas Study Program and focused on uh, some of the Royal and Ancient Links and had a chance to, unfortunately, I wasn't able to play on a Sunday when I walked St. Andrews, but I was able to take a lot of notes and pictures and, and really see the magnificent uh, landscape on the links. And it was a, a very special time and being able to put my thoughts on paper uh, through school as to uh, what I saw, what it meant to me at the time, and and then coming back uh, in 87, uh, back to the U.S. after my overseas study program, I saw a job listing board on MSU's campus in the landscape architecture department. And Dr. Ken Payne, at the time in the turfgrass program at MSU, was buddies with Robert Trent Jones, Sr. 
And the two would, as soon as Dr. Payne would see uh, students, he would, uh, that were interested in not only turf grass management, but perhaps golf course construction and maybe design, it would be a direct pipeline to Mr. Jones at Coral Ridge, uh, one of the properties, the golf courses, where he also had an office but owned um, in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. So some of these students would, would, would uh, like, like Neil Frazier, uh, Pat McMillan, um, Dan Veliki, and, and Jeff Bradley and, and others would, would go ahead and, and uh, he would ship them down to, to Florida and work for a while. And then some of these key people would end up being in the construction side of Florida Gulf, which was the construction arm, rather, of the Jones Empire. So it, it was really a culmination of what I had learned at Pine Lake Country Club what I had learned in my overseas study program, and then following up on this listing at MSU Landscape Architecture program, where Robert Trent Jones Companies was looking for uh, an entry-level golf course designer to work in Montclair and also at the, in their Malaga, Spain office. So coming back from travels, this meant a lot to me. That was kind of closing the circle of, some of the aspirations and dreams that were just in its infancy for me. And so I called and spoke to Mr. Jones and, and then this was, I met up with Mr. Jones at the uh, open in 1988 at Brookline. And from there at the time, Jim Singerling was, was with Mr. Jones and Dan Garson. And I met up uh, at the Copley Plaza hotel um, after uh Sunday's round when Curtis Strange and Nick Balbo were tied and they had to play, come back and play Monday. And we had a great conversation. I do remember toward the end of the conversation, this was late in the day, mind you, and after a long day that Mr. Jones actually visited one of the projects under construction with Roger uh, Ipswich in uh, just north of Boston. So during the course of conversation, we were talking about uh, Mr. Jones's work and my schooling and my aspirations, and he kind of nodded off, and I'm thinking, oh, boy, this could be challenging for, for Mr. Jones to remember who I am or what, I, what I'm looking at helping him out with. So that was kind of a, a long-winded start for the way things developed in my, in my career. There's a lot to unpack there. Did you go to the Monday playoff with uh, Nick Faldo and Curtis Strange? I, you know, I, I did for a little bit. Yeah, I did. And I had to catch my plane on the way back. But uh, if it wasn't for um, that playoff, I probably wouldn't have met Mr. Jones at the time. And the whole trip out there was planned with uh, Mr. Jones's secretary, Eileen Vanell. Um, but just uh, fortunately, it, it did happen, but I probably wouldn't have met him, like I say, if, if they didn't have the playoffs. So because he was so busy between uh, uh, at, up at the clubhouse, some interviews, some discussions, and then going to visit some of his project work, work it was hard to track him down on Sunday because I had no, I had a gallery pass, and they, you know, at the clubhouse, they weren't, <laughs> they were, you know, doing their job, providing security, and so this young buck and in college trying to speak to Mr. Jones, I'm sure that happened over and over again. So 
Um, fortunately, it did happen, and about a week or two later, I got a call from Mr. Jones, and he said, Dad, I want you to come and work with me in, in Roger. So, uh, so yeah, that was interesting the way things developed. And here I stayed at the youth hostel a couple blocks away, and uh, that's a you know just a real interesting way to travel. Is because I was so used to staying at hostels traveling Europe, it it was nothing to me. I, I I felt perfectly comfortable, and haven't stayed at a hostel since. But certainly at the time, it was perfect for me. That's quite a story, and I was going to ask you about this a little bit later, but. Uh... You've already men- mentioned golf course construction, and a lot has been made of Robert Trent Jones Sr.'s d- design philosophies, but what did you learn a- about golf course construction during your time working with him? Well, the, you know, really, uh, Roger and Mr. Jones, the, the, the big element, there were two big projects, uh, big in different manners. One was the Robert Trent Jones Trail that was taking place within the first couple of years that I started to work in, with Mr. Jones and Roger in 1988, and then uh, Anglebrook Golf Club in Lincolndale, Westchester County, New York. Two different sets of, of elements and regulatory and size of projects to work with. On one hand, you had the Robert Trent Jones Trail with huge pieces of property scattered around the state in phase one where 454 holes and 336 holes were essentially simultaneously taking place, and that's 324 golf holes at once. So that just was mind-boggling, thinking, oh, man, this is what an opportunity. And, and, you know, really didn't at the time. Yeah, I thought it was great, thought it was wonderful getting involved, but it wasn't until years later, looking back on it, how influential that was working with Mr. Jones, working with Roger, uh, who was a silent giant in the industry, in my mind, um, and so talented. And then looking at uh, Anglebrook, loads of constraints and, and a smaller piece of property that had New York State jurisdictional wetlands and watershed issues, Westchester County uh, regulatory elements, and uh, Army, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. So... A uh, beautiful piece of agricultural land, but was 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 finite from the standpoint of connectivity of of holes. As we looked at routing over and alongside wetlands and steep slopes and significant trees that we wanted to protect, uh, and it took about four years of planning and, and four to five years of total four to five years of planning and permitting, and then two years of construction. Where if you gauge that to the RTJ trail, we essentially built 324 holes with a period of two to three years. So we were finished by the time, really, Anglebrook opened up. And the, the scale and magnitude was, was you know, you had to be in awe at what took place. And it, like I say, it was a blessing to be involved in both because I was involved heavily in negotiating some of the uh, site planning and regulatory issues with Anglebrook and, and working alongside with Roger and, and evaluating the opportunities and constraints. And then the same point, um, making visits and, and out in the field with both Bobby Vaughn with uh, Sunbelt Golf in Alabama and, and Roger. And when uh, Mr. Jones would visit, uh, typically he would 
jump in Phillips and Jordan's helicopter, which was the site contractor, uh, an earth heavy earthwork contractor for the projects, and uh, we would make our way around. And just really two fabulous early learning experiences in my life and in my career. Do you remember your first RTJ trail site visit? And was it jarring just to see what was there and what it was going to become? I mean, you're a young architect. Do you even realize the scope of the project when you, when you get down there for the first time? Yeah, great. Really good, good, good question. And I, I think, I believe that was Birmingham and on an old, old, uh, mine site, uh, Oxmoor Valley. I believe that was an iron ore uh, site and heavy, heavy mine shafts throughout the property. In fact, that's where they ended up drilling and sourcing irrigation water was through a flooded mine shaft. But, uh, yeah, that was it. And, and looking at the, the, the routing, which essentially many of these courses were were built on nothing more than a routing plan. And so the, the kind of that element of, of going through the, the detailed planning of 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 in my uh, uh, career of the educational pursuits that how important planning was and, and detailed planning and then seeing nothing more than a stick and lollipop routing plan. This was fabulous. So the, the world was kind of the, our oyster there, uh, certainly with, with some regulatory elements that we had to uh, be concerned with and negotiate and navigate around and with. But uh, the size and magnitude was just a mind blower. And that was, that was uh, really a, a special element to, to, to look and to walk these corridors and in some cases they were an open field in other cases in Birmingham it sticks and briars and trees and and to be able to mark clearing was was <laughs> the first phase of clearing and sometimes even uh, the center lines weren't established by a surveyor so there was a little bit of uh, of bewilderment from the standpoint of geez you know is this is this really how the whole center line goes or is this the way we want it when it was hard to see the ground plane at times because the woods in, in, at different sites were were quite thick and the briars. I do remember tearing and, and losing losing blood, little bloodletting here and there with Roger and Bobby Vaughn and, and the, the key people uh, on the trail, uh, the site supervisors. Uh, but it was it was all well worth it and it was it was fun. It was really really enjoyable. Probably thousands of people were involved in building the trail, numerous sites throughout the state, different land, probably brutal summer conditions. How did it all get done? Roger and Bobby Vaughn struck up, and in Neil Frazier, one of the key people, key, key supervisors, uh, construction managers for Florida Golf, struck up an awesome relationship with together while renovating uh, the R.J. Reynolds uh, Tanglewood Golf Course in Clemens, North Carolina. I believe it was in Clemens. And from that, Bobby was sort of the, uh, I guess you could say, swing doctor with with uh, four, uh, uh, Dr. Uh, David Bronner at the course. And so they developed a relationship. And then 
all of a sudden the brainchild of of building some golf courses. So that renovation took well, uh, took place, and it was a, a, a great success. And somehow with Dr. David Bronner's work with the state of Alabama, with the retirement systems of the state, pension fund monies, uh, with uh, retirement pension fund monies for the teachers, the thought was, gee, how can how can Alabama become, take a foothold in the game of golf? And that's when there were thoughts of talking to Mr. Jones and, and Roger uh, of coming up with this idea of developing the trail. And Roger would know specifically and, and better on the, the evolution of how that took place. But um, it really was a lot. It was based on trust, based on work experience, and then getting Phillips and Jordan, as I mentioned, the heavy dirt work clearing, uh, pond excavation site contractor, there was that great rapport and certain elements of, of quantities of, of dirt, uh, areas of clearing. It was, it was all sort of a, a base plate uh, idea of quantities. There wasn't any significant uh, planning that was done, as I mentioned. A lot of this was done on trust and faith and very little, if, if, if any, extras during the project. It was a, just to be involved with this, I believe. People were just so enthused of playing a role in this that working off each other as a team really made this develop. And I think the teamwork, the framework that I kind of carry forward in my practice, that's very important in my mindset and my framework when I get involved in renovations or new course designs. How much has golf course construction changed in the last 30 years? With Jones, it was it was greens and then bunkers and then tees and fairways, kind of in that order. It was a, the complex, the green, you know, because that's where 100 yards in, 150 yards in, that's where a lot of the time was spent. Therefore, don't forget the variety of the game and the challenge and even the optics the illusional optics at times of what you're presenting uh, for the golfers to negotiate. Uh, so that was a, a, a big key hallmark in my mind and working alongside Roger and Mr. Jones uh, about the importance of the dance floor, but also the surrounds and how those contours meld together. But the, so that was one of the important elements and looking at for over the last few years, Mostly, I've been involved from a tee construction standpoint of, of square tee boxes and uh, versus more of the organic uh, or runway tees that Jones has been noted for in his earlier and mid-career. So the, the, even tee construction, uh, the, the laser leveling, the, the GPS elements that are in vogue and available to us today, both on equipment and just handheld devices, is, is, is even some of these apps that you can get on your phone uh, for measurement and, and uh, percent slope and things like that. So all great tools, um, but obviously the, the mindset and having your personal eye and feet on the ground are, are so important. Um, the, the bunkering, the, the strategy, the detailing, whether you have sculptured bunkers, the grass lines, the type of grass used, and how that's presented in the overall maintenance and and optics and strategy are, are valuable. 
Um, and one of the things that Roger always tried to uh, to let me know about is that it's easy to add bunkers. Try to make sure there's a purpose and there's a there's a, a need for it. So uh, so that was a, an element too that I always tried to uh, utilize and think about where what's the purpose? Have a purpose for things. And sometimes you could say, well, there's there's multiple purposes, or it's it's just a visual purpose. But really, in the mindset today, if you look at over the last 30 years, cost effectiveness. COVID has been a great element to, from the standpoint of getting people back in the game as a byproduct of what we've gone through in the last year and a half. Uh, certainly, um, it, it, it's good for the game, but as a, as a social distancing sport as it is, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of the, the focus, too, is on the detailed construction of tees, where tees used to be maybe just a shape topsoil top, where, where today, there's a specified uh, root zone mix, even under drainage in tees, uh, which is similar to a USGA greens construction tee box. So you're, you're, it, it be, can become an expensive proposition just even looking at tee construction and, and bunker construction with liners and the type of sand and the expense of, of uh, freight today, where sometimes, depending on the location of a club, Freight may be two times the the cost of the the ton of the sand. So there's a lot of elements to consider today in the evolution of of construction and the techniques over the last and materials over the last thirty years. Yeah, and the process has gotten different, right? You're just not building new golf courses or doing uh, huge renovations that often. You're you're sort of doing chunk work. And one of your projects that had a long time master plan is Rockland Country Club in Spark Hill, New York. Describe what you did there over time and how is that a better golf course than when you started working with it? It's very special when you have a client that you've been working with for a decade or two decades, even 24, 25 years. I guess you're doing something right there. So whenever I'm involved in a project like that, it's very, very special and important. And uh, Matt Seplo is the golf course superintendent, CGCS, and he's very intimately involved with both state and national regulatory elements and local regulatory elements and has a great program with the uh, Audubon um, on on the property, certified property. And um, we share very similar views on on the fact that golf is a living, breathing property and there there can be in the, in the mindset depending on the ownership depending on the club and what their affection is for sort of the, the spaces in between golf holes or alongside uh whether it's mon- monarch butterfly habitat pollinator habitat um and just the management of the property from the standpoint of inputs of water fertilization and long-term maintenance and care so uh, we we seem to dovetail uh, and have kindred spirits together from that mindset, looking at a thousand feet down, of how can golf in these edge areas of of ecosystems coexist. So that that alone has been a, an amazing element to learn through time and work along Matt, because I learn a 
an inordinate amount from him and working together. And I think with our mindset of, of the game of golf being a playable and enjoyable routing and layout that to try to accommodate all players. And from the management standpoint, the design standpoint rather, uh, the initial call in was in ninety uh, five to look at uh, tees and bunkers. And they had just done some initial work um, on, on a few bunkers. And they, they wanted to look at perhaps a, a, a vantage point of looking at the entire golf course with, with an architect. So right away, we, one year, we, we went ahead and, and, and did the bunkers, renovated the bunkers, in some cases repositioning, and in some cases adding, in other cases omitting. And then the following year, we did a, a, a tee complex program, all based, there wasn't a plan per se, but in some cases, based on the elevation and connectivity of holes, there were several prominent ridges where there were blind shots off tees to a landing area. So as part of the earthwork cut and fill needs, we excavated some of these uh, areas where there was a ridge and a blind shot from tee to landing area and harvested that material. In most cases, it was sand, some cases boulders, uh, and used that for fill. So it was sort of a kill two birds with one stone approach that uh, we were helping the visual components off tees and using the fill for feature construction. So, and then just recently to uh, to go back again and relook after through time building a couple of new greens and, and adding some green extensions over time. Now uh, they wanted to look at, a few years back, they wanted to look at their practice facilities, which is the main driving range and short game facilities is actually uh, on Arboretum property across 9W that is leased from New York State Parks. So they, they decided, even though it's on leased land, to make some wholesale improvements and having the uh, approval with parks to go ahead and, and do some tasteful uh, tea expansion, a little bit of work on the, the target greens within the range field, and then constructing an honest-to-goodness short game area with some bunkers and chipping areas and collection areas. So uh, that was sort of the, the first recent step of renovations, and then it evolved from there into a master plan uh, during COVID where <laughs> The, the bunkers were renovated, and that's uh, that was quite a, a, a dicey proposition, as, as many of my colleagues have gone through during COVID. Is how do you make these site visits out of out of state? What the protocols are locally, and then at the state level. So it was we were able to, but and one time even there was a pause of construction with the contractor, just because they were trying to figure out in New York State what's an essential business. So. We all figured that golf course construction is essential business, so we got going again. Um, in our mindset, that was the case, especially when you started a, a project that was in the neighborhood of $1.6 million, and all of a sudden there's a pause. So we wanted to protect the, ourselves from the standpoint of, of uh, having a social distance during construction to the best of our abilities, but also protect the assets of the client members want to play and we need to finish this project so it, it came to fruition and and I think the re, 
results from everything I've heard and have witnessed firsthand afterwards have been very successful. John, what else do you have going on these days? What parts of the country are you working in and what type of projects are you receiving? I just landed my first uh, renovation commission here in, in northern Michigan and that's working with Crystal Mountain uh, in Thompsonville. Uh, that's not far from Frankfurt and uh, right along Route 115 out of between Cadillac and Frankfurt. And it's a 36-hole golf course with a, a significant ski slopes at Crystal Mountain. And it's a really a year-round, almost a new town for the sports enthusiasts. Anywhere from attending golf schools to playing golf to, uh, I think they even have pickleball now, uh, tennis, um, cross-country skiing, uh, fat bike tire uh, courses, and perhaps even ATV uh, tracks around, or, or should I say trails around the property. And recently, they, they had some straight-line winds and some tornadic activity that actually took down quite a few trees on the property and damaged one of the areas that uh, is where there's an outdoor art uh, display that's it's quite renowned in the area. So cleanup was taking place um, during our project, but the first project also related to trees, and it, it wasn't any involvement with the, the straight-line winds, but the club wanted to open up under the leadership of the superintendent, Jason Farah, wanted to open up some windows for better air movement, uh, uh, visual access to and around the property. Decided to do this tree clearing and, and tree management program with a local forestry company, uh, Deering, and realized that there was, there was some opportunities that were opening up for reclamation of some of these golf holes and improvement of the golf holes. So they, they gave me a call um, after finding out that I was uh, local and also working with a, a company called Porous Pave that offers both uh, permeable paving and uh, a bunker liner scenario and solution based in Grant, Michigan. So uh, they learned about me being in Michigan here and as an ASGCA member and had a chance to walk the property with the owners and really uh, and with the stakeholders there, Jason and Kirk Davidson within uh, Crystal Mountain, and uh, developed some ideas of how we could improve these corridors and, and, and benefit with some feature improvements as a result of losing some of these trees. So the it wasn't it, it's not a master plan per se for the entire eighteen hole Betsy course or for the uh, the, the, the mountain course, but uh, it it was a first step to assist the club with some of these key holes of four, five, uh, seven, eight, and nine to build some new tees. And as part of the idea, there are little snippets of around the 36 holes of some waste area type um, sand landforms and, and bunkers. So the idea was to incorporate some of that mindset into these areas that had opened up uh, in a delicate touch. So that's part of the first phase of uh, the improvements on four and five, and then T work on eight and then uh, a new alignment into a green, which we did some clearing on both the tees on eight, and, and then the approach into the par five on the Betsy course, number eight. Uh, there were trees on the right-hand side, and by opening up some of these 
struggling trees between the emerald ash borer and some of the vines and, and, and uh, issues that are taking place with jack pine and some of the red pines, we decided to open up in this area and we featured a beautiful cherry tree that is a multi-stem tree. And that's going to be the showcase uh, of the golf hole toward the green. So we rerouted uh, the fairway alignment and constructed right now, we're constructing some uh, waste areas toward the new tees that we're going to pick up and elevate on the ninth hole. So it's a much improved, will be a much improved golf hole from tee to green. And it's just a pleasure to be involved with such wonderful clientele um, in, in both with Chris and Jim McGinnis, uh, the owners of Crystal Mountain, and then with uh, certainly the uh, the folks that I work on a regular day, basis with, the, the contractor, uh, Chris Furness, um, with Great Lakes Golf Course Construction, and with Jason and Kirk, as I mentioned to you earlier. So really neat project, and it's nice to, to work in a local project as well as some continuing work um, out east and, and even around the Midwest here. You've worked on a lot of Golden Age courses out east. What are some of the biggest challenges on those projects? And have you done short game and practice facilities on some of those landlocked courses out east? And how do you get the the practice situation to fit these days? Guy, that's a great question. And as you know, some of the older vintage courses and and heirloom courses, it's quite often you don't have the room and practice wasn't as important early on as it is becoming more and more so. So you, you look at the nook and crannies of properties and sometimes you have to, you have to reinvent opportunities and, and maybe it's a realignment of a, a, a of a, a few holes or a green complex in order to expand. Um, but when clubhouses are improving too, quite often that leads to renovation and expansion. So there's a little, <laughs> there can be, a little competition going on between the footprint of, of planned clubhouses and supportive facilities, uh, as well as the golf course. So you really take a hard look and look at different angles and elevations as to what can what is what's the maximum use that we can glean out of um, coming up with a hybrid practice facility. And in some cases, it's pretty easy when you have the land and the imagination. You can make things come together. But, uh, yeah, it can be a delicate balance between the facilities and, and certainly protecting the sanctity of the golf holes from the enjoyment and the, the playability and, and safety perspective. And in some cases, too, where there might be some trees, some trees that may not be the most desirable trees in the world or the species, but if they're in the right location and they're kind of a safety element, a protector of safety, then it's something to consider. So there's a delicate balance that really goes in the mindset of, from the club standpoint, the architect, uh, the superintendent, and how it, how it can be constructed together. You just mentioned doing some work with trees, John. Has that become an e- easier sell to a membership and the golfer than it was earlier in your career? Certainly. Um, I think even earlier in our career, my career, that uh, you'll you look at the USGA, golf course builders, golf course superintendents, the ASGCA, there was the uh, the mindset of, and, and maybe it was even a social element at the time, but kind of separating golf holes, infill, infill of property, beautification of property. Uh, so all of a sudden, 
20, 30, 40 years later, you have these vertical hazards, sometimes not the best trees, not the best species, species desirability, and not in the best location. So um, I think it was having an open mind and educating the membership to the possibilities of making some tough decisions, especially when you have, this is, golf courses are oasis for members and for, for the public to come and play. And they can also be with trees that can change the dichotomy of the way these corridors were built. In many out east, if you look at historical photographs, as, as you know, uh, and are very much aware of, uh, and sometimes we've used that on several projects for getting permission to remove trees. Many of them were were old fields, old farms that were cleared, and 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 stones and rocks were placed in in, in uh, fence lines and hedgerows. The land has become planted over time, both by man and nature. So how is there a way to really come up with a, a strategy and the uh, appreciation? To reclaim some of these original golf holes. So it's a delicate balance of that through time of how you can negotiate from the environmental aspect, perhaps some cases permitting aspect, and then the tree hugger membership aspect of, you know, don't touch our trees. Well, when these golf hole corridors are being played the way they were meant to be played with more options, something's got to give. So, um, and, and I having that appreciation and knowledge and understanding of trees and their cultivation and habit uh, species, I, that, that's been something that I'm fond of and, and can work, feel comfortable working with through ne the negotiation of developing a master plan to look at holistically the property from the environmental standpoint and then from the, the golf design standpoint. So to try to champion, rather, a long-term master plan, you really, as an architect, have to look at it from a lot of different angles and what the site features are, assets and liabilities are to harness and work together, coexist, I guess, I guess you could say, to breathe new life into what was intended by these architects, the Golden Age masters, and to take those the spirit of these corridors, but also the spirit of the land ground plane uh, to the detailed vernacular of grading, whether it's pin position, marker construction, and, and even fairway grading, which was in some cases pretty much non-existent in the day. John, last thing here, you, you grew up in Michigan, developed this passion for golf, get to work for one of the legends of the game, move away, get to see uh, places all over the United States and other parts of the world world in your mind what's been the most rewarding thing about your career journey so far and what's the most rewarding thing about being a golf course architect well it's uh it's so intermingled and i guess it, it would be the the interplay of outside working in a a, uh, a service industry of a great sport and you see a variety of different landscapes and properties but also working with people. I, I, like to, uh, I like the engagement, the involvement of listening to people. My wife says I can be a better listener, but that's, <laughs> uh, I can always work on that. But I, 
I like to listen to different mindsets and people's experiences, uh, whether it's professionally or, or just what, what's going on in other people's lives and how they look at the day-to-day world. So I think it's the, it's the, uh, the teamwork, the engagement of, of, of the social discourse of how to provide and look at an existing golf course or property and through the mindset of the design, construction, and maintenance. And really, that was something that was fostered at an early age with Mr. Jones and Roger, that it's, it's a team. It's, it's the design, it's the construction, and, and the, uh, the overall elements of the management, too, because um, I, I think that's, it's that teamwork. If I were going to say one thing, it's the vision and the mindset of the people that you meet in this industry and discussions of what in one person's mind is important and then another person. And kind of you look at the at, at your next project and how can you improve on a day-to-day basis of what you do. So, yeah, it, it, it's really the, the vision and teamwork. Well, John, this was a, a lot of fun. Learned a lot about your career and your work and also about golf course architecture. Thanks for joining the podcast and keep us updated on these projects you have going on. And it sounds like we need to make our way up to Crystal Mountain. I'm afraid, though, if we go up there, we may just stay forever. It sounds like it has everything for a uh, active outdoor person. Well, it's, it certainly does. And there are there are enough of this uh, further north. There are plenty distilleries and vineyards and uh, and hard cider companies that are, are, are dotting the landscape. But no, no question on crystal mountain it's a it's it's a tremendous resort and and there's really some terrific people that work there and have a mindset of of caring for their customer yeah and and thanks for the time and uh hopefully we get to do this again at some other point guy i appreciate it thank you for your time and for your for your questions i really really enjoyed it